It's a different form of activism where you're trying to engage people's emotions and stories can be a very powerful way to move people. I'm Ben, and you're listening to The Climate Pivot. For today's episode, I spoke with writer, storyteller, and professor Lali Davidson. Her second novel, Against the Grain, is described as an environmental thriller with a mystical twist and takes place against the backdrop of the Redwood Summer of 1990, when activists took extraordinary steps to protect California's old-growth redwoods. Lali and I talked about the political state we're in, the power of language, the relationship between activism and writing, and how she went about giving a voice to trees. I loved talking to Lolly, and I think her words serve as a reminder of the importance of storytelling in helping us to connect in a changing and turbulent world. You were talking about sort of how you were feeling and you touched on this idea of hopelessness and what's going on in New York at the moment. Yeah, yeah, well, I hate to sound hopeless because, you know, as Greta Thunberg, and I know I'm mispronouncing her name, says, there is no hope but in action. So if hopelessness leads you to inaction, then it's a really bad thing. But I was feeling a little pessimistic because New York State, maybe three years ago, passed some of the most progressive climate legislation in the country. It was following all the scientific guidelines of here's our goals, here's our deadlines. We need to meet carbon zero by such and such a date. It was excellent. But the next year and the next year and the next year, the Democratic Congress did not pass the funding necessary for it. So little pieces of legislation have been sneaking through that are helping us meet those goals. But the more important legislation, the ones that would have a real impact, are not passing. And it's depressing to me because I've been a lifelong Democrat. Um, My parents were Democrats. You know, we're supposed to be the progressive ones. We're supposed to be the ones who are protecting the environment. And yet we have a majority in both houses in upstate New York, and they're not passing it. And they have these excuses of like, well, it's too fast, or we've got to go the biofuel way. So it's clear to me that they're listening to the messages of the fossil fuel companies. And that's depressing, especially when they failed to pass the funding for this legislation during that month. And I can't remember what month it was, but there was a period in the spring where we were getting all these, the smoke from the Canadian wildfires that were caused by climate change. And literally, like pictures of New York City literally looked like Mars, like everything was red because there was so much smoke in the air and you could smell it. And I just thought if we can't pass legislation where we can smell the results of climate change, then I feel like we're doomed. (laughs) So that's not very helpful. It comes back to something we chatted about briefly before we started recording about our ability to forget. And it strikes me that every few months we have a big climate story now, which is great because that wasn't happening four or five years ago Mm -hmm. in that Mm -hmm. people are linking, at least on a surface level, these pictures of wildfires or flooding or whatever it is with the climate crisis. And there's this big moment of now things will change. These images will change the world. This video will wake people up. As you were saying, it's not it's not happening. It's not happening. And it's because, you know, the fossil fuel companies are so powerful and they have such influence. The history of social change, though, is that the people usually are the ones who lead the change through protesting. But sometimes it takes 70 years and we don't have 70 years. But I think climate activists have been really, really active for at least 40 years 
I mean, honestly, if you look at the research, we've known about this for a hundred years. People have been mm. talking about this for a hundred years, but people started to get very active in the, I would say in the eighties and the nineties. And as you said, I mean, yes, I, I feel grateful finally that the media is connecting the dots. There was a time 20 years ago when they wouldn't, they had like a policy where every time they mentioned some sort of environmental disaster, they simply would not mention it. And that now they connect it, but it's all in terms of disaster, which I don't think is great for us. I think that they should connect it with solutions. Like, mm. because this is the effect, these are the things that need to happen. So yeah, that's, that's depressing. And I think, you know, we keep fighting the fight. I mean, I think we need legislation. It's like, it's not, this is, we are way past the time when, you know, us using our reusable bottles and things are going to make the difference. I think you need to do those things because one hand washes the other. Seeing people use reusable bottles inspires people to realize that it can happen. But ultimately, we need legislation that says, okay, everybody, no more new gas hookups. I mean, I do have hope that somehow, you know, new technology is coming along all the way along the way, and that maybe we'll pull this rabbit out of the hat at the last minute. But as we know, the changes that we're already experiencing, the erratic shifts, the droughts, the fires, the floods, we're already, you know, everything is sort of 10 years ahead. So all the effects are what was laid in 10 years ago. So even if we did everything we we're supposed to do today, we still have 10 years of climate worsening to deal with. So, you know, at this point, I think keep fighting the good fight to get those changes, but also try to make peace with the fact that there's going to be a lot of upheaval. There's going to be a lot of chaos. And every time you have great big swaths of people being wiped out and having to relocate, you're going to have a lot of political upheaval and chaos. I think that's why in our country we're having, well, I guess in a lot of countries, there's so much fear about immigrants. I think on some unconscious level, we know, you know, uh, uh-oh, if a million people want to get in, what are we going to do? Right. We are already seeing climate migrants, climate refugees, they're not being spoken about in those terms broadly, because that doesn't, that doesn't fit the kind of political narratives. Yeah, I mean, I did, just it is extraordinary, the fact that left and right in mainstream politics has has adopted this shared language around anything from migration to climate of sort of, mm-hmm. quote unquote, common sense, and not letting too many people in or not spending beyond our means when it comes to green infrastructure and so on. And it's like, well, Uh, Yeah, I really want to claim back that notion of common sense, because I think it's been misappropriated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the truth of the matter is, we have plenty of money. This country is the richest nation in the world. We got plenty of money to do this. And we have a history of implementing, you know, the history of the railroad tracks. I mean, it was a terrible history of terrible oppression. But also it was a history of government investment and infrastructure. And of course, we've been subsidizing, the government has been subsidizing the infrastructure of fossil fuels as well. And that's the other thing that people don't want to talk about. Yes, absolutely. And we've touched on so many themes I'm sure we'll dig into over the conversation. It is good to bemoan the state of the world and politics in general at the moment, (laughs) I think. We kind of need to get it off our chest. Yeah. But you've alluded to activism and I I wondered how long you've considered yourself an activist and your history of involvement with the environmental movement in particular. It's funny. I think I've always been an activist starting back in college. I went to Oberlin College, which has a history of activism. And I didn't think of myself as very involved, but I keep stumbling across these pictures of myself involved in various things. I think we were involved in, I was involved in the trying to get the colleges to divest from South Africa. 
And there was this movement back then called No Business as Usual, which was kind of like Occupy Wall Street. And I was involved in that. So yeah, so I started in college and probably even before that in high school. But then, you know, I've not been a full-time activist. I have friends who are full-time activists. And those are the ones that I was writing about in my novel. They're not my friends, but the ones here on the East Coast who, who I really think are our modern day heroes, because these are people who they really do this full-time. They may have a part-time job or a full-time job, but then they live and breathe activism morning and night all the rest of the time. I don't do that. And I feel a little guilty about it, but I have a full-time job as a professor uh, at a community college that takes the bulk of my time. And then I spend some time writing, but there's been long periods where I wasn't writing and I thought I'll just be an activist instead. And what that means for me is, you know, being involved in some local groups keeping current with the news, doing, you know, the, there's a bunch of online actions that you can take and letters that you can write. So I, I always write my representatives. And then I lately I've decided since I don't have a lot of time for activism, I try to figure out where am I going to get the biggest bang for my buck. And personally, since I'm a half hour from Albany, I think lobbying face to face may be the best thing. In the end, I think we are human beings and we don't like to be ostracized by each other. We want to be liked by each other. So when you walk into an office and look somebody in the eye and say, you know, I'm worried about my child's future, it's hard for them to just go, oh, don't worry, it's no problem, you know. It makes me think about how, you know, when we see a, a wall of protesters at a march or blockading somewhere or whatever it is, it's really easy to kind of other them. And particularly if you are, I suppose, on the on the other side of an issue to think of them as, as this other group. Yeah. And yeah, that face to face communication is so vital. And I know that is really anecdotally really powerful for getting issues that otherwise might not make it to the legislative table on the radar of politicians. I think also people want to say, oh, you can't do anything and that activism, it doesn't do anything. However, why do you think all these companies invest so much money in advertisement? If advertisement didn't work, do you think they'd spend all that money on it? And it does work. So that's basically the same idea. You put a message out in front of people over and over and over again to get a specific action. And guess what? These companies are making a lot of money on that technique. So why wouldn't it work for us? And also, again, I think history has shown many times where the people without the power, they had nothing. They didn't have the weapons. They didn't have the money. All they had was protest. And they got the powerful person to change. And I, I know we have historical instances of that. So I believe in activism, but it does take repeated action. It takes time in the United States. I think it took women 70 years of protesting to get their vote. 70 years yeah. for something that basic. Yeah. It's a really profound point about advertising as a parallel. And it's not just companies, of course, it's also political parties, it's lobbying groups, you know, spend huge amounts of money doing this work, which in another context, we might call activism. I mean, it's, right. it's the same thing, right? And it makes me right. think about the different standards to which we hold, quote unquote, oppressed and oppressors uh, in terms mm. of violence, you know, we're, we're quite quick to see violence amongst the oppressed, but very slow to recognize that amongst oppressors. Yeah. And I think the same is true of activism, right? Like we're very quick to criticize methods of activism, but not as quick to criticize those forms that have been normalized, like advertising or like other forms of kind of political and social pressure. Yeah. Yeah. For example, we don't hold advertisers to being truthful. Mm -hmm. 
they can do anything they want pretty much. I mean, you know, drug manufacturers have laws that govern them, but you can say this is the best chicken in the world and nobody's going to counter you on that, you know, which is crazy, really. But we yeah. come to accept that as normal. I used to go to this coffee shop and I always brought my, you know, my mug. And the guy who ran the coffee shop was a right winger. You know, I was talking to him about, I would love it if you would put out just a water thing so we could get water. And he's like, oh, you, I, anytime you want water, just give it to me. And I said, well, I, I don't want to do that because every time I ask for water, you give me a great big plastic cup and I don't want to use that plastic cup. And he was like, oh, well, you know, there are some people who are really extremists and they bring their own cups. And I thought, wow, right. <laughs> I'm an extremist because I bring my own cups, but you're not an extremist because you're creating all this garbage is getting thrown away. That's a form of extremism that has become completely acceptable. And yet I'm labeled as extremists for saying, that's not a great idea. There is no such thing as throwing things away. There's no away. Yeah. You know? No, it's so true. And it makes me think of the way in which people who are trying to take those individual actions are often called upon to justify their reasoning, whether that is not flying or reducing or cutting out meat from their diets or whatever. You're often put on the receiving end of questions as to why are you doing this? And it's like, actually, the question should be, why are you doing that? Right. Like, I'm totally fine for anybody to take their own approach to this. But the burden of having to justify your decisions, if there is one, should fall on those who are making the choice that actually there isn't an obvious kind of ethical right. justification for. Right. I mean, the other one that I really hate is where they're like, well, but you're such a hypocrite because, you know, you drive a car or, you know, Greta Thunberg, we can't believe her because she blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, so so you're not allowed to point out a flaw in the system unless you yourself are perfect. Hmm. It's just a very subtle way of just silencing someone. Like if you're mm. not allowed to criticize unless you yourself are perfect, then all criticism is not allowed. Yeah. Oh, that who does that work for? And who does that help? Completely. And w without wanting to get kind of super into the politics of it, I do often think that the right is much better at holding these debates in some ways. I think many of us give in to that and become overly apologetic and preface everything with like, well, yes, I do still drive or I do still fly, but I think this is important and this is why I'm doing it. It's like, well, we don't need to constantly be apologizing for right. ourselves to be heard or to say what matters. Yeah. Learning to talk to the opposition. I'm, I'm still working on that. <laughs> it's tough. Why do you think I'm doing this podcast? I get to speak to the <laughs> people I have lots of beliefs in common with. You made a point about how you're not a full-time activist, but you do write. And I wondered whether you consider writing to be part of your activism or adjacent to it in any way. You know, I'm torn because I write really because I have to. You know, I think if you have a certain temperament, you, you just kind of like you need to engage in the world in a certain way. So I think that's what I learned for, you know, I had many doubts about why am I writing and many impediments. And one of them was is this a waste of time, especially if I can't get it published? So I, and I tend to be a kind of hard on myself. So if I were going to be, try to be a little more fair, I would say, yes, writing is activism because mm. it's just a different form. You know, I'm writing fiction. So you don't want to be too dictatorial. You don't want to pound people over the head with your political views. And a novel is supposed to be about people and their emotions and how they change. And, but people exist in a political world. So I would say, like, if you look at my first book, Blue Woman Burning, it's making less political overtly, although I think if you trace the lines, you'd find that they're all related. 
And so I guess to answer that question, so it's a different form of activism where you're trying to engage people's emotions. You're trying to just get people to feel things on the human level, less on the political intellectual level, you know, on the emotional level. So I think that a good novel creates a lived experience for other people so that it's almost the same thing as having lived it yourself. And we, I think we generally find that life is the best teacher and stories because they have that ability to kind of imitate life can be a very powerful way to move people. And I think also, again, when you look at activism, studies have shown that if you say a million people are starving to death, donate to this cause, you, you, many people go, well, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to donate because what's the point? But if you say, if you give me $30, Maria can eat for the rest of the year, people will do that. So we need that emotional connection. So I think that's where novels come in. I think probably a right winger would feel lectured at by my novels, but I did try to be fair. So the bad guy, I try to really humanize him and examine why he does what he does and not make him pure evil. And then the the good guy, the protagonist, he dips into behavior that I think is immoral. And he thinks it's immoral too, but he's kind of overcome. And so he has a moment of reckoning in the novel too of like, wow, wow, I didn't think I was this person. I didn't think I was this violent. Am I okay with that? So, you know, my hope is that, yeah, some people will read the novel and feel affirmed. Probably more likely people who already agree with me are going to read it and feel affirmed. But I'm, you know, there's always that hope that also people who are on the fence might get inspired. And I guess that's probably our best hope is that that middle group that's sitting on the fence is to get them to do something. I do think there's more of us who believe in the science of climate change and want to change it than there are people who don't. But it's the nature of things that the destructive power calls much more attention to things. And, and I guess also we are wired to pay attention to the negative more than the positive. Mm. It's part of our survival mechanism. There's so much I want to pull out of that. I mean, I think your sort of broad overview of the difference between maybe storytelling and activism, which obviously have a lot of overlap, mm-hmm. really accords with the distinction I have in my head, which is that activism is primarily to influence and stories are primarily to inspire. And there's kind of a bit of mm. both that happens along the way in each, but yeah, they are different functions, perhaps that each is more suited to. Right. Right. And you don't want to, you don't really don't want your novel to get into that overt influencing place. Right. Because it stops feeling authentic. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, as you touched on, people are complex. And I think what novels can do so well, and yours does, is sort of break down this notion of the perfect hero. Coming back to that idea of hypocrisy, really, that we don't have to be these perfect heroes to represent a cause or to represent an issue. We can be fully human and flawed at the same time as motivated by justice. I am really interested in the way that your writing, I'm talking about against the grain, uses very everyday human experiences to explore something that we often see as quite distant the planetary destruction, ecosystem destruction. I'm thinking particularly about the way in which we connect to landscapes as individuals and the the ties that we have to those landscapes. And also about the experience of grief, which I think many people listening to this will, will probably recognize that there is a continuity perhaps between the grief we are used to experiencing in our personal lives and our experience of what's happening on the planet at the moment. I just wonder if you could talk to that a little bit. 
Yeah, you had mentioned that beforehand about grief. And I thought, oh, yeah, huh. Sometimes I, I have ideas and then I forget that I had them and then I come back to them. So, yeah, there is a lot of grief in that book coming from the trees. You know, I gave voice to the trees. I think people, first of all, feel a huge connection to landscape, whether they know it or not. But I think a lot of the people who read my book say, oh, I'm so connected to the trees. I feel so much like what you what you talked about is is really true. So and then, you know, the science does show that if you go and hang out under a tree, it changes your cortisol levels and all of that. So then I took the science of Suzanne Sumard that Peter Volobin's book, The Hidden Life of Trees, really depended on in large part. And then translated that into something, into a, a language that they could speak. So first I, I thought, well, obviously I have to use English to make them speak and they don't speak English. So how can I make that believable? And so I thought, well, for, for one thing, we tend to see the world through the lens of who we are. So if they were seeing us, they're going to be thinking about root systems and they're going to be wondering where the hell our roots are. And they're going to be wondering where our bark is. And then they're going to be saying, well, that must be their bark and that must be their roots. So I just try to do that as much as possible to have them see us through the lens of how they are. And then I use science to help me understand that. And then I thought, well, I need some words. What language shall I use? And I decided to use Sanskrit because it's not the most ancient language, but it is one of the ancient ones that people know the most through yoga. And there's this belief uh, among yoga practitioners that the actual Sanskrit script, the actual waves, sound waves created by the words correspond to the actual thing itself. So samudra, the ocean, that is the frequency of the ocean, vibrates at the same frequency as that word. I love that idea. Mm. It certainly sound shapes things. So yeah, I think, you know, hopefully by fostering a deeper connection to the trees, that's going to move people to to great heroics, as it clearly did with these activists who inhabited trees and were willing to risk their lives to save them. Mm. On the trees speaking, I think those sections work really well. And I hope you don't mind me saying, but it would be very easy for them not to. I mean, I think that's a risk, right? You take as a writer. Is that something you were aware of? Yeah, it could be so cliche so easily. That was always a concern. And I really didn't want that. I really wanted to lift people out of the human consciousness and shift it over a bit, which is kind of always what I'm trying to do. Like my short stories do that more, I think, more, more overtly, uh, you know, trying to use language in a way that shifts consciousness. And I think good books do that. You know, it's it's not just the plot that hooks you in. Some It's the language. And then you... I don't know. I always felt like, you know, you know, a good movie or a good art show, if you come out and you find that everything looks different to you, because mm. it's actually influenced your perception. And sometimes you don't even know until you walk out what the influence is. And I don't know why I, I had always loved trees. My father had raised me to love trees. He loved trees. He did a lot of planting and take caretaking of trees on his 50 acres. And I don't know if I saw the redwoods first, or if I got this idea and then went to see the redwoods. But I do know that I had like a dream in which this roving eye, you know, this consciousness was kind of rove, like a camera it was like a roving over the Sierras and the mountains and the trees. And every once in a while I get this kind of a, it's like an overvoice in my dreams. And the voice said, this is worth protecting no matter the cost. And it was like, you know, I woke up from that dream going, oh my God, it's, you know, this is my uh, mission. Wow. Could you talk a little bit about the real life story that you were writing from? Yes. And it's still going on. 
So the real life person is Charles Hurwitz was a hedge fund operator. He was also one of the architects of the savings and loan balloon and fall, you know, already a billionaire. He was just going around looking at companies that were undervalued. That's how they, you know, through, through his lens, that's how he saw it. It's like, and so he found Pacific Lumber, which had been family owned for many years, but had gone public. And he saw that they had a cutting policy, which is that they would only cut as many trees as they thought could be replaced in a year through natural growth. So they therefore ended up with this huge holding of old growth redwoods. So he's looking at that going, oh my gosh, unrealized value. If we just cut all those down, we'll liquidate the assets and then sell the company and move on. And that's what he did with a lot of these companies. So he swooped in and staged a hostile takeover of Pacific Lumber. And already there was a lot of activism. That area has a long history of activism. You know, that's why it has the Redwood State Parks is, you know, people were aware of this incredible resource that needed to be protected. And so it just became a very emotional fight. That particular summer, 1990, called Redwood Summer, was kind of this collision of many forces. He was the perfect bad guy, the perfect face of a bad guy, somebody swooping in from the outside and sort of forcing a takeover. And the story worked very well that Pacific Lumber had been very paternalistic and taking care of its workers very well. And now this bad guy was coming in and changing that. A lot of the timber workers were anti-activists because they saw it as threatening their jobs. But there were also a lot of timber workers who understood that, you know, hey, we, we actually are for the same thing, you know, that our jobs will be protected if we protect the trees. So it's just all these forces came together. And that Redwood Summer was largely, I mean, I think there were a lot of activists involved in it, but the big architects who named it that were Daryl Cherney and Judy Berry. But like I said, there were many, many groups, so I don't want to offend anybody who's out there listening. So there were activists who would occupy trees. They would build these platforms. They would live up in the trees. They had people on the ground who would get the waste down and the food up. And so they were blocking the cutting of certain groves through that method. Then there were some amazing kind of demonstrations where people dressed up in costumes on the highway and stopped traffic. There were some monkey wrenching. And then eventually Linton got involved and that reserve, the Headwaters Reserve, was created. There was a lot of disappointment on the side of the activists because, of course, they didn't get as much land preserved as they wanted. And also, Charles Hurwitz walked away with billions of dollars of payout. So that was unfair, but hey, you know, it's there still, and that's great. And I guess the other thing is, you know, those activists started to use the Endangered Species Act to bring attention to the fact that, you know, all timber companies have to have a timber plan where they say, here's the environmental impact. And they were submitting these and they were being rubber stamped by the board and by the government. And, and they weren't really looking at, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. So these activists, the ones who said, hold on a second, you didn't do an environmental study. And they started to challenge that. So I think, you know, they had a huge impact on changing the system so that the government was holding them accountable more to their cuts. But of course, still too many things are being cut and the methods are still problematic. So it was a major win, but, it, you know, it wasn't a 100% win. I think that's the case with so many of these movements, right, is you have to accept whatever win you can get because it's so many factors working against you. Yeah. I think something that came across quite quickly to me reading it was there's this common portrayal, perhaps, of activists as the idealists and 
the corporate world, the capitalist world as the realists. Mm. And something that came across quite quickly is that actually the billionaire capitalists are the idealists in the sense that they are talking nonsense. You know, a lot of the language they use is pure fiction. It's it's made up concepts. And it kind of reminded me of films like The Big Short and things like that, where you've got people talking about things that you're just, this isn't real. You're talking about money and capital in a way that just completely abstracts it from the reality. Right. But that the people on the ground are actually, even though they're driven by passion and deep sort of emotional connection, are the realists because they're actually Mm -hmm. recognizing what is real, what is at stake. Yeah, literally, physically real. Yeah. Thank you. I, that's a good, a really good point. And yeah, to some extent, capitalism is a is an ideology. And the ideology is, it's better for everybody if I make a lot of money, because I'm the job maker. And so we've had those, you know, the job creators, and it's like, hold up a second, you know, we're the job doers, like your whole thing isn't going to work unless you've got the job doers. So right. who's more important, the job creators, or the job doers, or how can yeah. you even separate them really? I wanted to talk a little bit about storytelling and writing in general. You mentioned earlier that it was something you needed to do. And I wondered what that felt like, what that meant to you. So I've always written, like even as a child, and my mother read to us every night and she was a wonderful reader. So we grew up on like Charles Dickens and things like that. And, you know, at a very early age, I was having a little trouble. We traveled all over the world. We lived in Germany for a year when I was five. So I was learning to read English and German at the same time because we went to a German school. And so I came back to the United States and I couldn't spell. I think that's partly because I'm a little neurodivergent, but it was also because I was very confused about which vowels made what sounds. So they gave me a tutor and the tutor's trying to explain vowels. And I was like, what? I don't know what a vowel is. And she said, just, just write a story. And it was just like, oh my God, you know, I can, I can write a story. Like if I don't like the ending of all those stories my mother read to me, I could make my own story. So I think it was really important for me as a child, that sense of like, I can be the creator of my world. I think that gave me a sense of power and a sense of voice that I really needed as one of five children in a family that, you know, I I often was not heard. So I started to listen to myself. And then somewhere along the line, I got a little mixed up about why I was writing. And and it was sort of like I wanted to prove that I was smart or, you know, I wanted to be famous or blah, blah, blah. And those turned out to be not very good motivators for writing. So I struggled a lot with motivation. And so as a result, I quit writing many, many times, but it would always kind of sneak back in through journaling or I don't know, it just is always like, Life did not feel complete unless I was hitting the page once in a while and trying to grapple with or trying to express my thoughts. And I think also there's like a, I don't know where this developed, but if I'm walking around and I'll look outside and, you know, I'll see something, a bird, and I'll think, I wonder how how I would phrase that. You know, how do I, how do I put that into words? So there was just this habit always of how do I put that into words? And I think that I feel a little bit more alive when I'm writing. I'm engaging in the world in this deep way. And and I was I said something about temperament. I think introverts, the definition of introvert and extrovert that you typically hear is an introvert is shy and they don't like to interact with the world and extroverts are out there and they do. But a, a better definition that really spoke to me was introverts engage in the world in an interior way. So we're both engaging in the world, but we do it inside our heads. You almost have to. And if you don't do that, you're just not going to be quite balanced. You're not going to feel quite 
present or quite like life mm. is worth living, you know. So that's how I feel kind of called. It's all those bigger reasons of like, I want to change the world. I want to be famous. I want to write something that nobody's ever written before. Like I said, they, they don't motivate well. They run out. Like if you don't get published, then why are you writing? You know, if you're not writing something new, then it, is it worth it? So in the end, the more I connect to, I just need to do it because it's like breathing for me. That keeps me writing. And then the rest comes or doesn't come. You know, I, I don't think I will ever be a very famous writer because there's, again, there's a big capitalist machine at work there that you, you just can't break in mm -hmm. unless they anoint you as one of the chosen. So I'm independently published, so I'm already on the outs. But So I don't have any illusions about becoming famous, but what feeds me is that, again, it's sort of at the end of the day, where does the novel have the most power? It's really between the reader and the page. So I think we need to be read as writers, but we don't need to be read by lots and lots of people. I guess my ambition for writing has been fulfilled many times over. Every time a person says, that's exactly how I felt. Thank you so much for saying that. Or that's exactly the relationship I have with my sister. Or that's how I feel when I'm standing under a tree. Ambition fulfilled. Or like in my writing group, the writing demands that I create a writing group where we share our writing. And I feel like some of our, the best part of humanity occurs in those rooms where we are talking about our writing. Like that's when you see the best part of human beings. And that's also my purpose is to engage with other people at our, at our highest level. So I guess it's also a spiritual practice in that sense. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think there's a lot in there that's really powerful and is actually very encouraging because I think so many people set out to write with particular outcomes in mind and actually writing is itself its own outcome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people sort of condescend what they call writing as therapy or writing as self-work. And actually, there's no better goal really than kind of working on yourself as, as you know, you have to work on yourself before you can work beyond yourself. And as you say, it is an interior expression of interacting in the world, which I think is a really beautiful way to think about it. Yeah. And it also does things that other activities can't do. I mean, I'm not saying that writing is, you know, superior in any way to any of the other arts, because I think they're all valuable in, in different ways. But writing requires that you use all these different parts of your brain and that you coordinate them. And that's why a lot of people hate writing, because it's like, I mean, I used to feel in college, like my brain was being just torn apart. Like it was just like, how do I both freely associate and select at the same time. And so I think it requires, you know, all these different parts of your brain coordinating with each other. So, and then, yeah, there's some inherent thing, this witnessing that happens. You know, we're so contradictory as people. And when you write something down, you're like, I'm such an outgoing, warm person today. And then tomorrow you write down, I hate humanity. And only because you wrote down that thing yesterday can you go, huh, mm. What happened? How did I how did I change? Otherwise, you're just kind of living in this unconscious moment to moment and never connecting the dots. So I think writing does that both personally and historically, you know, helps us see the connections. So, yeah, it's very, very powerful. It comes back to something you said earlier about sort of seeing the world through the eyes of others, living other lives. And I think there is something about emerging from a from a novel, from a work of fiction you do feel like you've stepped into another universe, another pair of eyes for however long. Do you think the stories we're telling societally at the moment are 
up to the challenge of the climate crisis, but also other challenges with which we're met. And how do you think literature and storytelling might need to evolve? Mm. Well, I, I don't know, but I do think there's probably more viewers of TV, or by TV I mean by movies, series, things like that, than there are readers. So I think it's sort of evolved into that. I think it's been really interesting watching with the streaming companies because we get these things, you know, the in South American countries they would call soap operas telenovelas. But I think that's really what all these series are. They are TV novels. And it's been fascinating to me because really the, the quality of these televised things has gone up. I think, extraordinarily. I mean, if you watch like a movie from the 50s or the 60s or 70s, the quality of the acting, the quality of the photography, the quality of the writing is, I think, demonstrably better mm. on a regular basis. So I think that's where our novel writing has gone is into this visual place. And I'm not sure that's a terrible thing. I mean, I guess it's bad because you need to have this technologically difficult and expensive thing to create it and to see it. So environmentally, it's not maybe the best development. And when, one of the wonderful things about writing is how low tech it is. Like you really just need a piece of paper and a pencil, and then maybe you need a computer and that's it. It's so it's cheap to produce in that sense. And it doesn't take as many people to produce it. But I think that television, I do think it's having an impact. Whether it's up to the task, I don't know. Many, many things have to work together to get us where we need to go. And that that's certainly a part of it. And how big a part, I, I have no idea. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I've sort of heard people make the case that so many of our best writers are now in TV writers' rooms, whereas, you know, years before they might have mm -hmm. been in university literature departments or whatever. And I think there's some real truth to that. You touched on earlier about sort of this idea of hope and optimism versus despair. And I, I certainly would like to see more stories that give us hope. Yes. Yeah, I, let's underscore that. I mean, I guess we all need to be devastated at least several times about the Holocaust and about slavery and all the colonization of all these different countries. Like, we, we, I think we need to feel that pain. But, but there comes a point when it's kind of like you're reinforcing the victimhood of certain people unless you tell the stories of their success. There's a movie that came out about the black workers that were involved in, in NASA. And I just thought, we need more movies like this showing success to remind people that it's possible. Yeah, I think particularly for young people as well, right? Showing what the world can look like as much as what it has looked like. On the subject of which you teach as well, which you've touched on a little bit, how does that impact both your writing and how you're seeing the world today? First of all, it's a it's a great profession. I mean, it's, it's, it's true we're not paid enough, but I feel like I'm doing something important every single day, you know, in connecting with other human beings and trying to help them use their brains better. That's how, that's what I see my job as. I'm not teaching you how to write. I'm teaching you how to understand how your brain works and how to optimize that and how to develop strategies to deal with the places that it doesn't work so well and then reach the places where it does work well. And that's really exciting because that gives me hope. I mean, yes, I think it would be great if you learned how to write a good essay, but really what I want you to do is learn how to think carefully and systematically and creatively because that's going to change your life. That decision of whether or not to have that child or whether or not to follow that doctor's advice comes down to your the clarity of your thought process and your ability to do research. So, so I feel like I'm doing something very, very important. And I love that. 
And then I think I'm when I retire, I think I'm really going to miss that always knowing the current 18-year-old. You know, I learn so much about what's going on. I, language is changing so fast, and I'm learning it from them. And when I retire, I won't mm. have that, you know. A student used a word the other day. They were like, they started their essay, a canon event in my life is, and I was like, a canon event? What is that? Like, I only knew the application of literary canon. Well, it turns out you know that word. It's like everybody knows it, you know, because it came from that yeah. Spider-Man movie. <laughs> so funny. The virality of language is so apparent now through social media and, and online content that these words just take on this global profile. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary to think that how long ago was that use of that word coined? Not long. And yet... Everyone knows it, except for me. <laughs> hundreds hundreds of millions of people, certainly. <laughs> certainly anyone who's kind of engaged in social media or in a large degree. So it's really fascinating. You know, I... I, and I do have I do have ultimately hope for humanity. I was thinking another very interesting kind of coming together of things. I was just watching All the Light We Cannot See, the four-part series on Netflix. I mean, I thought it was so sentimental. They really ruined it. And it made me go back and reread the... I'm rereading it now because I was like, I thought the novel was way better than that. Let me Let me just see. And of course it is. It often is. But the very interesting point that I got from both the novel and the series is that how it was the advent of the radio that may have been part of what made it possible for Hitler to gain so much power. And I thought, oh, yes, we're having that same thing now. It's the new technology is the Internet. And it's also giving voice to this. And, you know, I guess the part, the hopeful part is that, you know, the pendulum swings. So the pendulum is swinging. And I'm seeing a little tiny bit of hope, like in Poland, that maybe the pendulum's starting to swing back. You know, that as each new technology comes in, there are these cataclysmic changes. Then there's, you know, there's this, oh, this is amazing. Oh, oh, this is terrible. And then we kind of adjust and everything filters, you know. So hopefully the pendulum's starting to swing back to sanity. Yeah, I hope so too. I don't know what that looks like at the moment. And I certainly feel on on one side of the Atlantic at any given time, there's total political chaos. I mean, I'm going to work really hard. I've worked really hard in the last couple of elections, and I'm going to work really hard for this one too. And I think that I don't think he's going to win, but only if we all work hard, assuming that he will, if we don't, you know, like, I just think everybody's got to do more than you did last time. So don't don't underestimate it. But I, I have hope that we're going to see some sanity here. But it's it's unbelievable that this he's such a criminal on so many different levels. And we have so much proof and that he has that he's a viable candidate. It's just it's every day I go like, what is going on with this country? And, and it's because a lot of people are checked out. A lot of people are checked into this idea of like reality is whatever I say it is. And I hope that our I keep thinking, keep connecting to other people. Just keep on, you know, the person at the grocery store, your partner, your friends, like keep the human connection because ultimately that's what's going to get us through whatever bad times are ahead. And I also think like historically, if you take like a thousand years step back, we had like a mini golden age that is ending now. And now and now I think we're probably going to return to the state of humanity that we've always been in and that we sort of forgot, which is things are going to be harder physically for us. But we'll be okay. I think we'll be okay. There's going to be certain things that happen that we can't stop. But I, again, I think keep asserting your human contact, keep writing. And maybe that, that will remind us of each other's humanity. And that's the most important thing. Absolutely. You give me a lot to think about. Before we wrap up, what is your hope for your legacy of your work, but also your activism? 
Well, for the writing, I do hope that somehow by word of mouth and slow, steady, sure connection that the worth of my books will, you know, will rise. Some people will see that. More people will see it. That's my hope. I kind of like maybe I'll be one of those people that after I die, people go, you know, she was a good writer. So that's for my work. That's easy. My legacy for the activism. I just really certainly don't want Trump elected and definitely want to see us, you know, kind of win in climate activism. I want to see us round the corner where we're actually making huge change. And, oh, I don't know, freedom, justice, and, you know, and peace for all. That's all. (laughs) That's all I hope. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know what? We're never going to get freedom and justice and peace for all everywhere all at once, but we can have it in pockets here and there. And that matters. You know, and we have it in pockets here and there, and we should never mm. forget that. Yeah, that's a really great reminder. Thank you. Where can people find you? Oh, uh, go to my website, lollydavidson.com, L-A-L-E, looks like Lale, lollydavidson, D-A-V-I-D-S-O-N.com, or my publisher is Red Penguin Books. Thank you. Lolly, it's been amazing to chat. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for listening to The Climate Pivot. If you've enjoyed the show and found it useful, I could ask you to leave it a five-star review, subscribe, or donate to the copy link in this episode's show notes. But if I'm honest, there's one thing I'd really love for you to do. I'd be grateful if you could recommend this podcast to two friends you think it might benefit, who might be at the beginning of their own climate pivots or wondering how and where to begin. I'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, take care of yourself, others and the planet and good luck with your climate pivot.